0: From 744 Ostrom Avenue, I'm Guile Fogues, this is the Daily Orange Podcast. It's Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019. Today, bedbugs, evictions, and changes to the law and city initiatives that may tamp down on both. From the starting line to the sidelines, reflection and recovery from a former Syracuse quarterback, and a cornerstone of SU's underground music scene is now burning. me now is a print copy of the Daily Orange and the headline for the A1 reads, Shift in Power. The byline is Emma Fultz who's an assistant news editor for the DO. Hello Emma.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Perhaps it's best if we begin just as you did in your piece and that is with Tawanda O'Neill. Could you tell me a little bit about who she is?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so Tawanda is a tenant who lives in the north side neighborhood of Syracuse. She lives in an apartment with her three children and her grandson, and she's dealt with a lot of code violations and just problems with her property that her property manager has not addressed um, or has inadequately addressed in the years that she's lived there.
0: What sort of problems has she had with her property?
1: Starting in 20, July of 2018, she has dealt with bed bugs in her property, and there has been a hole in her roof and her ceiling that caused rain to pour into her son's bedroom for some time. She's dealt with broken windows for about two years. And she's had birds that have gotten into the walls of her apartment. And they've died in there and have brought it in there. But she can also hear the live birds to the walls. So there's just been a lot of problems with her property that have not been addressed.
0: And has she reached out to the landlord? Has she tried to find any sort of resolution with the landlord to try and address I mean, the birds in the walls, mm-hmm. the, uh, the leaking ceiling and roof. Um, what has she tried to do to, to mitigate those problems?
1: Yes, yeah, she has. Um, she's contacted her property manager, who she only knows by his first name, Sam, um, to notify him of the bed bugs. And originally, he sent over a person with bed bug spray, um, and she was not satisfied with that solution because bed bugs, it's an extensive uh, fumigation process to exterminate them completely. So at that point she made the first call to code enforcement in July of 2018 Um, and since then she has contacted Sam about the hole in her ceiling and all the other issues that she's had with the property and she's also uh, contacted code enforcement again to follow up on the issues that still exist but she was told that she cannot make another complaint on the existing open complaints that are still unaddressed and every time that she has notified her landlord of the bedbugs or has called the Department of Code Enforcement, Um, she has received an eviction notice.
0: The title, of course, Shift in Power. I take it that things have been changing recently that may help to Wanda in her situation.
1: Yeah, so there has been a shift in power from landlords to tenants, both at the state level and the local level. Uh, Most notably at the state level, there was the passage of the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019. And so what this law does is it gives a lot of tenants protections from landlord exploitation. Uh, Most notably, um, unlawful evictions are now a crime. So if a landlord was to change the locks on a tenant or to use force to evict them, that is now classified as a misdemeanor and can carry a fine between $1,000 to $10,000 per violation. And blacklists are also um, banned as well. So if Tawanda uh, was to be evicted, Um, that would not be able to follow her into another property, and landlords would not be able to use her previous uh, eviction records against her in deciding whether or not to accept her as a tenant in their property.
0: If I heard you correctly, someone like Tawanda, just for notifying the landlord about these code violations, she got an eviction notice to dissuade her from pushing any further to try and fix these problems with her property.
1: Um, she said that she got her first eviction notice um, as soon as she called the code enforcement department to notify of the, of the bed bugs. She had been living in that apartment since May of 2016 and had never received an eviction notice until she made that call to code enforcement. And every time she's called codes to follow up On the problems that still exist at her property or she's called sam to ask him to address anything there's been another eviction notice so it's been a kind of continuing process and now with this new law if he were to evict her Um, It would actually be able to be thrown out in court if it was found that she called code enforcement within a year of receiving an eviction notice.
0: I think this will be important for listeners to understand, too. I guess I've normally associated evictions with people who have missed payments on a a, a rental property. Has that been the case with Tawanda?
1: Uh, No. This most recent eviction court appointment that she went to in July uh, of 2019 was actually classified as a holdover eviction, which is when a landlord is suing for the right to evict a tenant regardless of whether they paid their rent. So even if Tawanda paid her rent, um, he still would like to have her out of the property.
0: I take it it's not just the law. Key to your story are Palmer, Harvey, and Jamie Howley. Who are they and what are they trying to do here?
1: Palmer, Harvey, and Jamie Howley are two of three co-chairs or co-founders of the Syracuse Tenants Union. And the third uh, founder is Mary Trainer, who's a lawyer with legal services of CNY. And with the uh, Syracuse Tenants Union, they are doing monthly tenant teach-ins, which um, are used to educate tenants on a variety of issues. But the most recent one has been about this new law. And so both Palmer, Jamie, and Mary are trying to inform tenants of their new rights and the new protection that they have under this law so that they can empower tenants to fight back from unlawful evictions or landlord uh, exploitation and neglect.
0: It's not just the tenants that need support. Some of the landlords, some of the smaller landlords, I guess, don't quite know that they need resources. What sort of things are there to help them out in these sorts of situations?
1: Well, the city has recently unveiled um, 11 new initiatives to address housing uh, stability in Syracuse. And this also um, plays a factor in the new shift in power between landlords and tenants. But one of the initiatives is hosted by the Division of Code Enforcement, and that is a Healthy Housing 101 event, which is used to educate both tenants and landlords about what constitutes healthy and safe housing.
0: I guess it's probably best if we look back toward Tawanda. Where is she at now? What is she looking to do with her property? Where is she at?
1: Well, the bed bug extermination has really been what's holding her back from leaving and finding um, sufficient housing for her and her family. Um, Essentially, she went back to court on July 22nd uh, for the latest eviction, which was the holdover eviction. And at that court appointment, the judge, Judge Vanessa Bogan, um, ordered Enzone Properties, who owns uh, Tawanda's home, uh, to exterminate the bedbugs by August 5th, which was the appointment when both Tawanda and Enzo would reconvene in court. And Tawanda was saying that once that second and third um, bedbug extermination goes through, she'll hopefully be able to leave that apartment and find somewhere else for her family to live. Because she doesn't want to bring the bedbugs to another home, and she doesn't. she's contemplated going to a homeless shelter, but she doesn't want to bring the bedbugs there either. So she's kind of stuck in this place that has all of these code violations and problems, and she can't get out until... The landlord fixes them. But thankfully, um, the second round of exterminations for the bed bugs did go through by the time they reconvened in court, and the third extermination was set to be completed.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Emma. You can catch Emma's story, Shift and Power, on The Daily Word. I
2: was by myself. I didn't want to be around anybody. Nobody wanted to be around me at that point. I did was dark room with nobody like I remember my roommate, my roommate Cole, knocking on the door to see if I was there and I just didn't answer like I just sat there
0: that was AJ Long a former Syracuse quarterback his story of reflection and recovery is currently featured in the DO sports section assistant copy editor Adam Hillman got a chance to speak with Long hey Adam hey how's it going could you tell me a little bit about who AJ Long was here at SU
2: AJ Long was a quarterback in 2014 and 2015 and he came into SU, you know, he was a four-star recruit, pretty highly touted, got recruited by a few schools, you know, Kansas State, Cincinnati, Rutgers, and came in that first year and was a backup pretty pretty early on, which is expected of a true freshman. And once the uh, starter Terrell Hunt got hurt, played the Florida State game, very next game against Wake Forest, became the first ever true freshman quarterback for Syracuse to win his first game. Long out of the shotgun, low snap, catches it.
0: Launches one near side, put for a touchdown! Steve Ismail. 23
2: yards, first score of his career. One freshman finds another, and the Syracuse fans can look forward to the future. wasn't the last, but he's, he was the first. So it was pretty impressive. And then by the end of that year, he threw for about 900 yards. Long rolls out to pass. Pressure comes. Now he's rolling right on the far side. Long's looking towards the end zone. He dives in. Touchdown, Syracuse four touchdowns, eight interceptions, and going into that second year, he was expected to compete for the starting job, or at least be the backup behind Hunt, who was now healthy. But that's kind of where things went wrong.
0: That winning streak, he's a true freshman, one of the first to win a game as a freshman, that didn't last long though.
2: No, no. So entering that sophomore year, he had a couple, he had a wrist injury, got moved down the depth chart. The coach who he had basically came to Syracuse for, Coach McDonald, was fired and went to NC State They hired Tim Lester, who really didn't see Long as his prototypical guy? He liked true freshman, who was true freshman, then Eric Dungey, who just graduated, who many many people know. And he went into that year, and he wasn't was kind of feeling down. So some of the anxiety started to started to really begin. And then October, he's playing on the scout team. He's playing against uh, South Florida that week. He's he's playing as Trey Flowers, and he gets hit in the head by another by a defensive lineman. That's his subbiest so third concussion in two years. And a week later, after all the concussion systems have, symptoms have gone away, he's medically disqualified. And he's not allowed to play football at Syracuse anymore.
0: What did that medical disqualification do to his morale, to his mental health? What, how did it affect him?
2: Oh, it crushed him. I mean, he's talked about that day that he went back to his room, and he just he sat in his room the rest of the day. And his roommate, Cole Murphy, who used to play kicker here, was like knocking on the door saying, Are you okay? Are you okay? And he just... He just, he just didn't want to be around anybody. And that and that last three... So he was there for another three months after that until the end of the semester. And he said it was just one of the roughest times of his life because he called Syracuse his dream school. And it was all of a sudden it had just been taken away from him. So it was it was a really rough time for him.
0: So he transferred to Wagner. What happened to his football career at that point?
2: Let me preface this by saying that one of the reasons he main reasons he went to Wagner was because at that time, not a lot of schools were too happy about having a kid who had just been medically disqualified by an ACC school on their roster. It was around the time that that, do you remember the movie Concussion? Yeah. It was around that time that came out, and from from his observation, a lot of schools were a little scared of it. They either were open to it, and then the medical the medical team denied it, or they just were not open to it at all. So, Wagner was one of the few schools that was that was open to it, and it's 1AA, so it's a step lower than Division I, than your ACC, SEC schools. And... He went there and he really hit it off with with their offensive coordinator uh, coach, Custavius Patterson, who ran kind of a spread offense that really worked with his ability to run the ball, throw the ball, do different things. But about a month in there, the same thing that happened at Syracuse happened at Wagner where the offensive coordinator was fired, Custavius Patterson was demoted from offensive coordinator to quarterback's coach, and all of a sudden Long's like, well, what do I do now? They brought in this new guy, Rick Scarangelo, who's actually now the offensive coordinator for the Broncos. And he, he, didn't, he didn't like Long. You know, Long was he's a fast guy. He's not the, not the biggest quarterback, but, you know, he's athletic. He can use his arm, can use his legs. And he liked this other guy, Alex Thompson, who's a tall guy, not very mobile, but has a big arm. And so he thought that fit his system best. And so what he started doing is he just wouldn't – he knew that Thompson was his guy and just only would pay attention to him in meetings. So he wouldn't – he'd only talk to Thompson. Long and Luke Massey who was a starting quarterback for Wagner last year. Got no attention. And so long, and you know, I started to get those same feelings of you know that he was left out in the cold, just like just like it happened at Syracuse. So those same types of anxiety and self doubt really started to come back to bite him again. Did he end up
0: staying at Wagner? What what happened at the point when he felt like he was no longer really valuable to the Wagner team?
2: So about midway through that season, he hadn't played at all, and he had he had a back injury in the offseason from lifting, and he'd gotten healthy, and then he just it just hadn't really worked out. So about halfway through the season, they were on the road to Bryant, and he said something like, we should have won this game, or like, we shouldn't have lost, and the coaching staff didn't take a liking to it, and he's he's a free spirit. He likes to speak his mind. He's very direct, and that, that really got on his nerve, and so at that point, he said, you know, I'm not playing here. W- what am I doing here? And so we, he just decided at that point it was a good time to leave, so he... Left there and then transferred to Westchester, which is Division Two in uh, in Pennsylvania, and, and that seemed to work out better because he actually got playing time there. So
0: because of the medical disqualification, because he was sort of moving down the tier of schools that he could actually play for, he obviously couldn't go pro.
2: What did he do at that point? After he graduated college, I mean, he had always had this plan of going back and coaching. It had always been his plan for basically as what he said as long as he you know as long as he could remember is that his father coached too and it just it's just something he, he loves he loves football so he wanted to be around the game so he went back to his hometown of Bethlehem and he had been working with a couple quarterbacks for a few years at this point just like kids around the area so he started this thing called Diamond Athletics which is a position training which is a precision training coaching program where they work with kids from front seven offensive line defensive line receivers corners safeties the they have a bunch of different guys who work with them who have experience in college semi pro and they, they they coach these kids in in Pennsylvania you know who really there's not a lot of you know there's not a lot of football elite football training programs there so he's doing that with a couple of a uh, couple of his colleagues and he's also now quarterback's coach at Whitehall High School which is a local high school around there so he's not really sure which one he wants to do more um just kind of feeling it out right now one thing he did say was that with Diamond Athletics really taking off more he he does see a feature with that and hopes that that can be his day job
0: how did you come across him what brought you to that story and why does he
2: feel a need to speak out now? I actually started working on this my sophomore year last year, and I just was thinking I was looking through some like some Syracuse football records and I saw a bunch of guys have been medically disqualified in like a couple years and I was like, that's really weird, and I looked into him because he was really the most famous one. He had started a couple games for Syracuse, and I wanted to do the story about the medical disqualification, and as a whole. But I, you know, getting some people to to speak was a little difficult. And I think for him speaking out about this, you know, I, I can't really get inside his mind, but, you know, he's, he's really been through a lot. He's, 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 been through, he's been through some tough times. And I came there and I asked him these questions. And I, th- I, think, that, I think that, you know, he thought that it was the right time. And it's that I, was, that I was treating it seriously. I wasn't, because a lot of times in, you know, football and sports in general, they don't really, they just kind of push this stuff aside. And they, they say, you know, mental health doesn't really matter. And, you know, you're a player, play and then go home and do your thing. She saw someone who's taking stuff seriously and was willing to share it. All right, thank you so much, Adam.
0: As a new arch opens this school year with the Barnes Center, another arc took an unexpected final bow. The headline is SU's underground music house, the Arc, to shut down indefinitely. The reporter is Christopher Chikelo, who is an assistant copy editor for Pulp. Hey, Chris. Hey. So if one were to walk into 917 Lancaster Avenue on a weekend night last semester, what might they
3: hear? Walking up to the uh, door, you're definitely going to start hearing some, you know, muffled guitar and drum sounds. But then as you pay your way in, walk down the stairs, the energy in there. What sort of atmosphere is it? So you're walking into a basement. What do you see? What do you what do you hear? It's not the most conventional of uh, venues. You walk down, you're in kind of a old basement. Uh, it's low ceilings. Uh, you can see kind of all the piping and whatnot. You know, the stage is right there. You're five feet away from um, these local and touring bands, all college kids playing their hearts out. So I should probably go without
0: mentioning, but these concerts happened in a house that people actually lived in.
3: Who are Ryan McEwen, Noah Steinberg, and Kyle Smith? Ryan McEwen and Noah Steinberg are sound technology majors. Uh, They're senior, current seniors. They did the music and they founded the house together. And Kyle Smith uh, was more of the journalist and he really documented the shows and took it upon himself to capture what the art was. Talk to me a little bit about how they got the idea to host these concerts. There's a bit
0: of a history of Houses hosting concerts at Syracuse, isn't there?
3: Definitely. Absolutely. I would say that Big Red, one of the fraternities on campus, Delta Chi, uh, definitely had a part to play. Uh, He was friends with a lot of the marching band kids his freshman year and He went to a lot of these shows and really enjoyed them and was not really expecting the live music scene to be as vibrant as it was.
0: One of the details in your piece that I... Couldn't stop thinking about was this idea of having sixty people for a show once and sometimes twice a week. What effect did that have on Ryan, um, on Noah, and Kyle?
3: Yeah, it definitely put a great strain on their relationship. A big part was just they were constantly cleaning from the weekend. They were getting ready for shows. There was just a lot of preparation, and sometimes you know that took a toll on them in regards to their schooling, their own music endeavors. McEwen was part of uh, FLOTUS and had to drop out um, as their keyboardist to start the arc. And Noah Steinberg was part of the Thursday nights. School is actually the house band, basically. They performed there a lot.
0: They wanted to make sure that most of the profits that they had from their admission would go to the bands. And not only that, but they would invite them to stay in the house, too. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so it wasn't most of the profits. It was all of the profits. They gave all of the money to performers because you know, they experienced times where they would go to house shows on their own t- respective tours and get paid very inadequately. And McEwen and Steinberg both agreed that they didn't want any band to feel that way. So they actually uh, definitely took a hit um, in starting up the ARC and, and giving away their profits.
0: They, they closed this venue that they started themselves uh, in, in, in no small part for the strain that it put on them. How do they want people to remember their venue? Was there something they wanted people to make sure that they knew n- now that they're closing shop?
3: I definitely think the ARC, while it might be closed, you know, I think they wanted to be a symbol for the success that you can have in running a music venue. and. Kyle Smith is actually, you know, they talked about potentially writing a book and documenting their success and kind of a how-to guide at, on how to run a music venue um so i definitely think in that sense they want it to be a symbol. thank you so much chris you can catch
0: chris's story su's underground music house the arc to shut down indefinitely on the daily
2: Orange website
0: Thank you so much for tuning into the Daily Orange podcast. A special thank you to Emma, Adam, Chris, the folks over at WAER for the play-by-play sound and the artists from the ARC. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'll see you next Tuesday.